All right. Thank you, Anu. I appreciate that. Thank you for that warm welcome. That's right, people. We are live on YouTube right now. That's it. We are a room full of living human beings, and there are thousands of Russian bots watching us right now. It's wild. They're all clicking away. They're watching us right now. YouTube could actually take down this stream at any moment. So there is a chance that this is a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity for you guys. Uh, I'm very happy you're here. Glad to see so many of you guys here. Uh, this issue, this issue about tech censorship and the big tech companies and how it relates to free speech and the First Amendment and all of these things, uh, of course, is something that's, that's close to my heart and something that in the last four or five years I've sort of been at the center of. I think most of you guys know I'm a big free speech guy and obviously as someone that puts out uh, a YouTube show and a podcast and all of these things, that these companies have become really the, the highways for us to communicate. Any one of you that has any clue as to who I am, it's because you found me on YouTube or on Twitter or on Facebook. That's how I'm sure many of you guys met with each other. It's how many of you find out about any of the thinkers that you're interested in, in these days or any of the members of the intellectual dark web, which sounds much scarier than it actually is. And Right now, we're at a really precarious moment with these companies because they seem to be cracking down on all uh, dissident thought. And it's not just, just far-right thought. It's not just scary right-wing thought or alt-right thought or whatever any of those things actually are. What we're realizing is that more and more, uh, these things are coming down on people that just sort of take any position outside of what is sort of what you could describe as sort of mainstream kind of leftist woke progressive i'm using a lot of buzzwords talk right that if you just take any position that is outside of that that you seemingly are on the outside of of what the censorship police think is okay so before i bring up the panelists here tonight and we're going to have a, a deep dive for about an hour uh, completely uncensored on all of these topics and sort of figure out what our touch points are and where we differ on some of these things. Uh, I wanted to show you a video uh, of something that was released this morning, actually. I didn't know about this. I was flying here. I took a red eye from L.A. last night, woke up uh, here in, uh, in Cleveland about 6 a.m., and this video had dropped. This is a video from James O'Keefe over at Project Veritas that I'm sure many of you guys are familiar with. And what he does is he often gets in touch with employees at these tech companies uh, who want to blow the whistle on what's going on and how, these, how the algorithms are being manipulated, how search is being manipulated, how they're de-boosting certain articles, how they, how they try to add fairness to other things which actually screw up reality because they don't believe that reality is actually fair. And I'm, we're going to show you a two-minute video now. This is with a Google engineer talking about how they're manipulating the YouTube search and suggested bar that you see when you're in YouTube. And you, you might recognize one of the guys they talk about. So let's throw it to the video. Do you ever wonder where your family comes from? I do, and that's why I was so excited to get my results back from Ancestry DNA. I've just seen the naturalization card from my great, great grandfather, Jacob Littman, who immigrated to America in 1891 and worked as a shoe merchant in New York. Ancestry DNA combines DNA results with over 100 million family trees and billions of records to give you more insight into your family story, like where your ancestors lived, where they worked, even how long they attended school. 
Ancestry DNA has amassed the most diverse DNA collection on Earth so they can compare your DNA to people all over the world. I'm so glad I took the test and I can't wait to share more of my story with you. Connect with your family history and get your story started. Go to Ancestry.com slash Ruben today for 20% off your Ancestry DNA kit. That's Ancestry.com slash Ruben for 20% off your Ancestry DNA kit. Ancestry.com slash Ruben. Support for the Rubin Report comes from our friends at Rocket Mortgage by Quicken Loans. Home is so much more than a house. It's your own little slice of heaven. That's why when you find the perfect place for you and your family, getting a mortgage shouldn't get in the way. Imagine how it feels to have an award-winning team by your side through every step of the mortgage process. It's awesome. And exactly what you get with Rocket Mortgage by Quicken Loans. Their team of mortgage experts is obsessed with finding a better way, which means that their number one goal is to make the home buying process smoother for you. Quicken Loans has helped millions of Americans achieve their dream of home ownership, and when you're ready to purchase the home of your dreams, they can help you too. Their teams care about getting you home. That's why J.D. Power has ranked Quicken Loans highest in customer satisfaction for primary mortgage origination nine years in a row and highest in mortgage servicing five years in a row. When you work with them, you get more than just a loan because Rocket Mortgage is more than just a lender. Get started online at rocketmortgage.com slash Rubin, equal housing lender license in all 50 states, nmlsconsumeraccess.org number 3030. For J.D. Power Award information, visit jdpower.com. Rocket Mortgage by Quicken Loans. Push button, get mortgage. Now back to the show. But it was a special occasion that happened um, uh, in May, and they um, they invited us all to the Masonic Temple to talk about the future of the company uh, for YouTube, and they described that they were going to have more content filtering. And right after that happened, um, a lot of the content creators started to get demonetized, um, and their uh, videos started to get deranked. I'm talking about... Um, Dave Rubin, um, talking about Carpe Diem, talking about Tim, uh, Tim Pool, um, and a lot of the other content creators that are within the YouTube ecosystem just saw their, 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 their view counts just go through the floor. So how is it that Google is able to target these people? The way that Google is able to target people is that they take videos and then they do a uh, transliteration through using artificial intelligence. Specifically, the insider verified that PragerU, the conservative educational YouTube channel, and talk show host Dave Rubin's videos received heightened analysis in the artificial intelligence program Viacon. Viacon polices YouTube distribution, singling Prager and Rubin out as right-wing and news talk. And they look at the translated text of what those people are saying, and then they assign certain categories to them, like right-winger or, um, or, or, or news talk, and then they're able to, to take those and apply their algorithmic rebiasing unfairness algorithms to them so that their content is suppressed across the platform. And so they're coming in and they're putting their thumb down, and they're deciding which content the users are allowed to see. What's scary about this to you? What's scary is that Google's deciding what's important and what's not important. Um, they are going through and they're effectively deleting conversations from the, the, the national narrative. It reminds me of a book called 1984. 
Yeah, so there you go. I don't want to upset you guys, but just by being in a room with me, um, you're now all right. So congratulations, everybody. Uh, yeah. Uh-oh. Now you applauded that. Now I'm definitely demonetized. Oh, brother. That's all right. So really, this issue, I think, is the issue of our time, because everything else that we talk about, whether we're talking about philosophy or history or art or anything else, it's all dependent on our ability to communicate with each other. And have these tech companies grown too large? Do they control too much information and our ability to communicate with each other? And is there anything we can do about that? So I am going to bring up three guests. We normally only do one guest on the Ruben Report. Sometimes we do two. You're getting three tonight, uh, so make some noise. I'm going to bring them all out together. We've got the chairman of the board of the Ayn Rand Institute, Yaron Brook. A many-time Rubin Report guest. We have a philosophy instructor at Rutgers University, Greg Salmieri. And you better really give this guy a round of applause because he was a former senior engineer manager at Facebook, Brian Amaridge. He worked in the belly of the beast, people. All right, guys, just by sitting here together, we are very scary people. And uh, the people watching at home are, are being radicalized. So. Let's just dive into it. Uh, I guess I'll give you the most blue sky question that I can ask first, and uh, I'll start with you. Sure. Uh, because you worked at Facebook. So how big have these companies become? When we talk about the way that they can control information, not only the videos you get, but when you search a historical figure or event, the way they can reorganize uh, figures or past or history, um, anything related to our health records, all of these things. How big have these companies actually become? Well, I mean, I think you have to break down what big means in that context. I mean, there are lots of different dimensions you can look at. On, on one side, they're gigantic companies, which just means they have a huge number of people in, you know, just in the first place. So they've got 35,000, 50,000 people, and each of those you know, employees is responsible for millions and millions and millions of users, effectively. And so you have an unbelievable amount of control, in a sense, of what the experience is like for many, many people around the world, which is part of why people are attracted to, to working there. But I, I think in, you're aware of that as, as an employee of these companies. That, that's why you go there. You go there because, and hopefully because you're trying to make some, do something better with that. Um, but you have to be careful, I think, when you're looking at these issues not to... Not, not to look at that in terms of just deciding what people see, because that's at the end of the day, that's not what these tools do. Um, you know, people, it's about distribution when you're talking about something like YouTube or Facebook. It's about what people see. But at the end of the day, people decide for themselves what they think is true. Um, and it, at its best, these companies are aware of that. Right. So people decide for themselves, except if they're being selected certain information, mm -hmm. certainly manually selected. We know about algorithmic decisions, but then manually as well, that's where it becomes a problem. Greg, is it possible that companies like this have become too large in that when you have 35,000 employees, 50,000 employees, you simply cannot control exactly what's going on there. You're giving 
low-level employees often a tremendous amount of power to manipulate search terms and the way these videos are distributed, et cetera? Well, I think it's a tremendous challenge to manage a large organization like that. I mean, Brian can tell us a lot more having worked in that industry. It's difficult. And if the companies are too large to handle that management challenge, then we'll see that in the companies not providing a good product. And I think the way to uh, correct for that is people will come out with better products that compete with them. Uh, the only alternative to that, when, when we talk about them getting too large, there's the worry of uh, the idea that they're too large and they have to be broken up by trust-busting regulations. This is what Elizabeth Warren wants on the left. It's what a lot of people on the right now want. And uh, I don't think that there's any size a company can get where that's warranted. Because all you're saying then is who's really in charge of these decisions is the government. And if largeness was a problem, the government's larger than any of these uh, companies. Uh, but I don't think largeness in the end is, is this intractable problem. It's just a management problem of finding out how to get a good policy, how to come up with a policy that scales, how to get your people to enforce it. it it's difficult, but it's a problem that needs to be solved either by the people working at the current major tech companies to improve their product or by companies that will come up and replace them. Yeah, I think it's interesting that you brought up how the left and the right right now are agreeing, uh, seemingly agreeing, or at least a large portion of them are agreeing on this premise that they have to be broken up. So you have Elizabeth Warren saying they have to be broken up. That seems to be in line with most progressive policies. But right now you have a ton of conservatives, and I'm even seeing it from some libertarians, who are saying that the power that they control is so awesome, the amount of information that they know about us is so epic and out of control that we want regulation. And it's, it's always interesting to me because I see this a lot from the Trump people, let's say, the MAGA people who feel like they're the outsiders, right? And it's like, all right, you're gonna hand that power to Trump and maybe in the short term, <laughs> Trump does some things that are good for you and the platforms become a little more fair. Uh, but of course, this is a short-sighted game, right? Because then if Trump's out of office, you've now handed that power over to say the progressive side and now they've got the president and they've got tech, and now you have a bigger problem on your hand. Well, and it, but it's more than that. It's, it's you're granting the government now power to decide not only of a size, sheer size, so-called monopolies. That's bad enough. We, we can talk about that. But now you're giving them the discretion of deciding when does some form of discrimination about content, when is that okay and when it is not. And it, that is huge power. That is power over speech. That is a clear violation of free speech when the government starts to make those kind of decisions. And you're right, when the right is in, they'll decide in one way, and the left is in, they'll decide another way. But it's the fact that we're giving government that power, and it won't stop with social media. I mean, one of the things that I think, I think gets lost in this is the, the fact that... Uh, I thought I muted this. It, it is the fact that... You know, on the one hand, we think of these companies as, as controlling what we see and how much, and, and all this information that we receive. But think about what it was like, I don't know, 60 years ago, right? 60 years ago, there was like two encyclopedias. You got your history, you got everything from a bunch of people who wrote two encyclopedias. And do you think they weren't biased? Were they, you know, of course they were biased. And, and, and many of them were, were academics with a certain political reflection, and they wrote encyclopedias in a particular way. And there were just two. Right? And then on top of that, there was some news. Well, there were three television stations. If you go back and read conservative media in the 1960s, they thought the three media stations, three television stations, were all radically left. And they probably were. 
Uh, and, and when Ronald Reagan ran for president, all three television stations were clearly against him, as was every new, almost every newspaper in the country. He won in spite of that. It, so the history is such that it's always been the case that, that uh, you know, the news we get, the information we get has been very restricted. Indeed, I believe we live in a time where we have more sources of information, more avenues, more ability to get different points of view than ever in all of human history. It's never been less controlled. So in spite of the size of Facebook, because there's still some competition and because there's still newspapers and there's still television and there's still a few other things, you've got so much more source of information than ever in human history. And I don't think, I think it's important not to lose that perspective. Yeah, so I definitely want to dive more into whether regulation could work, and I absolutely think that uh, the four of us agree that that's really not. Look, I, I always tell people, it's like, I pay my California state taxes <laughs> on a California state website, which looks like Prodigy in 1999. You know what I mean? Like, or... You know, it's just, it's so, yeah, <laughs> that's why you moved to Puerto Rico. There, there you go. go. Um, I, I remember Prodigy. That's how old I am. That's, that's <laughs> exactly. Um, but, okay, but before we talk more about sort of regulation or the, or the platform versus publisher debate, which I think is a really interesting one, uh, Brian, can you just talk a little bit more about the culture at a mm -hmm. place like Facebook? Because I think that's what people are really worried about, that even if you can accept Iran's premise that we have more access to information than ever before, and all of those things that sort of when you have these companies that are so the culture there seemingly is about conforming to a certain set of ideas, uh, how that actually affects the output and the work. Would you rather have the products you use tested by bearded hipsters or soldiers? Duke Cannon, which makes just about everything a man needs for grooming, partners with active duty military to develop new ideas and review products. Anything that doesn't meet the high standards of soldiers doesn't happen. Duke Cannon makes big ass brick of soap, which is modeled after the rough cut brick style soap used by GIs during the Korean War. And it smells just like the great outdoors. They also make news anchor pomade best damn beard wash, superior grade shaving cream, and solid cologne, a foolproof way to smell good on the go. Duke Cannon is committed to their products and to the men and women serving our country. Their products are tested and reviewed by our military, and a portion of their proceeds directly supports veteran causes. You'll love Duke Cannon's hair, beard, and shaving products so much, you may start humming our national anthem. Visit DukeCannon.com right now and get 15% off your first order with the promo code RUBIN. Free shipping on orders over $35. That's DukeCannon.com, promo code Ruben. What do you have to do to get a good night's sleep? The secret is in the mattress. So why not get a new one, but not just any mattress, a purple mattress. You need to get one. The purple mattress will probably feel different than anything you've experienced because it uses brand new material that was developed by an actual rocket science. It's not like the memory foam you might be used to. The purple material feels very unique because it's both firm and soft at the same time, so it keeps everything supported while still feeling really comfortable. Plus, it's breathable, so it sleeps cool. A hundred-night risk-free trial. If you're not fully satisfied, you can return your mattress for a full refund, backed by a 10-year warranty, free shipping, and returns. You're gonna love purple, and right now, my listeners will get a free purple pillow with the purchase of a mattress. That's in addition to the great free 
gifts that they're offering site-wide. Just text Ruben to 84888. The only way to get this free pillow is to text Ruben to 84888. That's R-U-B-I-N to 84888. Message and data rates may apply. Now back to the show. Sure. I mean, so it's, it changed a lot over time. You know, I, I joined in 2012, and at that point in time, you know, Facebook was essentially an apolitical place internally. It was ruthlessly focused on the mission of the company, which was to make the world more open and connected. It was an unbelievably healthy culture internally uh, in terms of the ability to debate different points of view and to challenge people who are above you in the hierarchy. It was very non-hierarchical in a sense. It was as close to a meritocracy I think you could get in a company. Uh, So I think it was very healthy at that point in time. Things did start to change, I think, around 2015, 2016, you know, particularly when Donald Trump secured like the, the Republican nomination, um, what what happened was, you know, I think in in general the world became a little bit more politicized, there, and we we just started spending more time on that. It became identity politics has, has run us up into this place where it became more of who we think of, you know, how, who we are, and you know, one of these things we had inside Facebook culturally was this this sort of goal of bringing your authentic self to work. And what that meant was that there was no separation between your sort of professional life and your personal life. It was, we want you to be your whole self uh, at at Facebook. Uh, And that makes a lot of sense when you're building a product that is so personal. Like you, you need to be able to accommodate and tailor and deal with the complexity of people on a personal level. Um, and and you, you need to deal with that level of complexity when you're building the product, if, you, if you're expecting people to, to trust and to share and to, to bring their authentic self into the product. And so that made a lot of sense from a product perspective. But the combination of those two things where we're saying, okay, everybody, you know, there is no distinction between professional and personal, bring your whole self to work, and everybody is getting a little bit more political, meant that politics came to work. More and more it started becoming, you know, these political discussions and, uh, you know, Facebook has this, this, this culture where, you know, you could put any poster you want up on the wall for, for the causes and issues that you care about. Most of them were focused on, on the product and the mission and things like that, but not all of them were. Uh, and the, the sheer demographics of the company, you know, it's in Silicon Valley, it's, it's, it is overwhelmingly left-leaning, meant that that was sort of the, you know, the, 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 tr- the trinity, I suppose, of, of uh, a perfect storm for far left-leaning politics to kind of come into the company. And, you know, not, there were a number of key events that like made it really clear that that was happening. Um, you know, the just the, there's a Q&A that happens every Friday um, with Mark. Uh, so the whole company can sort of just line up and ask questions to Mark about what, you know, his thoughts on where the company's going, what we're doing, different conditions in, going on in the marketplace. Uh, and those questions themselves started becoming more political in nature. Uh, you know, and we, we started getting questions like, you know, hey, Peter Thiel is, is supports Donald Trump and he's on our board of directors. Why are we okay with that? Um, and so there, and the, the tone of those questions started increasingly becoming political. It became increasingly direct about the fact that, you know, of course we feel this way and this way happens to be some socially left-leaning um, right. point of, of view. The, the funny part of bringing up Teal is that everything that these guys talk about is about diversity, and yet Teal was the only one, and mm. probably still is, the only one really out there on the board that has any sort of diversity of thought when it comes yeah. to any of the issues we're talking about. Yeah, I mean, in fact, as far as I understand, that's that's 
one of his primary values as a board member is that he's often the most far out there. When nobody else has any ideas about how to do something, he usually does. Um, so yeah, it was definitely ironic. Um, so you know, you started getting more of those kinds of questions. You start seeing these posters, Black Lives Matter, are up on the wall. Uh, Resist is up on the wall. Um, you see Obama Hope posters up on the wall. Uh, and then a couple other things happened that made it really clear that the culture was changing. So, so Greg, what do you think happened to conservatives or libertarians or anyone sort of right-leaning that they really seemingly have gotten cowed into silence? Because I do think a lot of this discussion is framed around the fact that there's a certain set of views that were, ma you know, mainstream sort of Ronald Reagan political views, say, 20 years ago, that now if you say them, they're thought of as sort of far right. Like, the right has really sort of, it's, it's been cowed, I think, by the, the blatant use or the overuse of racist, homophobic, bigot, etc. Well, I don't think it's, it's, I don't think of politics as on that kind of a right-left spectrum where what we could think of is like the current politics is way to the left of Reagan and uh, things that were as right as Reagan were are now as far right. We're playing a video game here. I don't know what these noises are. Um, because you, you have to go... Issue YouTube is messing with us right now. Yeah. You see what we're, we're up against over here? So you have to go issue by issue. If you think about... Uh, I'll say why this is, but if you think about, for example, Reagan on trade, well, Reagan's view on trade is pretty similar to um, Obama's view on trade and Clinton's view on trade and Carter's view on trade. Trump's view on trade is way different from that and something that used to be associated with the far left. Uh, if you look on race issues um, and immigration issues, right? Reagan was very pro-immigration. He did an amnesty and was celebrated for that. So it's, there are some issues where Reagan's positions are now considered far right. There are some where they're now considered left. And it's because these concepts left and right don't really mean much, and they shift moment to moment with the political winds. What I do think is the good things about Reagan, uh, and I don't think of Reagan as a, any kind of hero, but the good things in him uh, were the defense of capitalism, the being pro-free markets uh, to the limited extent that he was, the um, being assertive of America as some kind of ideal of freedom, particularly in his rhetoric about the Soviet Union. Um, those kinds of things I think insofar as the right holds on to them, they don't have the kind of moral defense needed for them, and so they don't know what to say when they're challenged. But the sadder thing is, and in a way this is Reagan's legacy, I think those issues have been supplanted on the right by other issues. So there are uh, free marketers, but what's in the ascendancy on the right these days are um, religionists and, um, and anti-immigrationists. And those people aren't what would have been called conservatives in the, um, in the 60s. Uh, they're not um, the kind of view that I'm in favor of. And I think those people are part of the problem. I mean, th those views are inherently tribalistic, fighty kinds of views. They're not views that really come from a place of principle. And so if that's what's animating you, I think it's hard to talk about principle. And if you're the minority then, you, you have that view and you're the minority and the other view is a leftist view, all you're going to be able to do is rage against the other people and feel put upon the same way that um, the leftists feel put upon in corporate cultures that are different from theirs. And you're not going to be able to have a kind of self-confident, principled debate about what's happening. So I, there's a lot to blame on the left here too, but I, I think the lack of ideas and the lack of being about something principled 
uh, has really been poisoned to the right. So to that point, Ron, do you think that part of the problem is that these companies all feel that they have to be political? I mean, if you're listening to what, what both of these guys said, that there's seemingly this new need that everything has to be political all the time. You should bring your full self to work so that you can be actualized enough and that thus your politics become part of your work. The companies, that, I mean, every commercial that we see now yeah. from Gillette to Sephora to Nike, everything has some sort of social justice or intersectional angle to it and that it's leaving us sort of with no space to realize, wow, we live in a country of 320-some-odd uh, 320 million people, and, that, and the differences are actually okay and, and why this country is so good. Well, I mean, the left has for a long time been arguing that everything is political and that everything must be political, that arts, the essential, the essential feature of art is politics. That's the theme of our conference here is art. That art is essentially political, that every action that you take is political and imbued with political meaning. And look, the left has won the intellectual debate. I mean, we can talk about, uh, uh, there's a reason why Facebook is dominated by people of the left. There's a reason why YouTube's dominated by people of the left. It's because they won. They, they won the universities. They dominate the universities. They've won the intellectual debate. Yes, there's a populist, anti-leftist movement, but it's populist, it's anti-intellectual, it's non-intellectual. But the left has won that debate and has influenced the culture, and the culture has become more politicized. Everything now is framed in terms of politics, and ultimately now it's become, it's framed in which tribe you belong to, which group you belong to. Not just an ideology, because ideology seems to have, have, have gone, because your ideology is, is framed by which group you belong to, right? So it's, it's all now group politics, and you know, if, I, if I'm running a, a large corporation, you know, and, and you don't have solid principles, and you don't have solid ideas, what do you do? You, you, you've got huge amount of pressure from the left. Notice that the, the left is very active, right? It has whole committees to, to identify ads that might not be intersectional enough, or whatever the hell that means, you know, or, or might not, not be politically correct enough, and they put pressure on companies. They're very, very active. Uh, you know, the, 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 the people who are pro-free markets certainly have not been that active in the past. You know, too busy making money is, is a big part of it, but too busy living. But the left, A, views everything as political. B, is willing to put the resources and the effort and the energy and the action into trying to sway the culture and sway these companies. And you're a CEO, and you're getting pressure from this group, and they're yelling at you, and they're going to your, board, to, to, to your shareholder meetings, and they're trying to place people on your board of directors, and they're rallying their people to boycott your product or whatever. It's a huge amount of pressure for unprincipled, you know, for somebody who doesn't have a huge backbone, a really strong backbone, not to, to resist and not to succumb. And I think what you're seeing is company after company succumbing and, and doing what, you know, what they're pressured to be doing. There's a, there's a huge moral guilt issue yeah. that I've also seen. Like it's hugely rampant inside Facebook where the company is unbelievably successful. And you know, frankly, I, I don't think many people inside the company understand why. And I don't think that they stand tall as, as they should and have pride in what they've created and the value it creates for the world. And so what happens when you're unbelievably, unprecedentedly successful and you don't really understand why and you're not as proud as you ought to be in what you've created is that when these groups come to you and they claim, oh, you're hurting me in this way, you're hurting me in that way, um, 
you, you, you bow down to it. I mean, you want to help. You want to help the little guy. Um, you want to give back, so to, so to speak. Uh, and so I think that that often wins. And this is what we've been teaching in business schools. We've been teaching corporate social responsibility for decades. We've been teaching stakeholder capitalism. Now, don't maximize shareholder wealth. Don't make money. That's not what you're about. What you're really about is appeasing all these stakeholders. So now a stakeholder is coming to you a powerful stakeholder with a big voice and a moral voice and saying you can't do this, do something else, it's easy to succumb because of the guilt and it's also consistent with what you studied in business school. Well, that one I find just at a personal level so interesting because I am not a shareholder in Google, but I am a creator on YouTube and when they demonetize my videos uh, because I talk about, I mean, I, I'm pretty sure something like six of the first eight clips that I ever did with you were demonetized. This radical, you're on right over here. And it's crazy with that shirt. Um, <laughs> I've never seen those, that part of your arm before, by the way. I've, I've literally only ever seen you in a jacket. It's amazing. Um, <laughs> this is a risque episode. Yeah, turn this into a fashion show or something. Um, but one of the things that I always think about is, okay, look, as a private company, they can do whatever they want when it comes to demonization. They don't have to offer my channel monetization in the first place. They don't have to offer me that service. And by the no. way, they, I, I always acknowledge this, they give us tremendous technology to do literally what we're doing right no. now. I mean, I'm not paying anything for this live stream. This is going out, hopefully to hundreds of thousands and millions of people, absolutely for free. So I, it's funny, when I, when I rail against YouTube, it's because I want it to work better and I feel if I use my voice, that would be better than, than using government force, let's say. Um, but, but it's interesting to me on the shareholder part of it because it seems that if they were trying to maximize profits, if that's what they're really there to do as opposed to do good or whatever some of these catchphrases are, well, you'd want to put ads on every video out there. And, and maybe there are some things that are really too extreme or certain things that are illegal for, you know, an ISIS recruiting video you don't want on your platform. But beyond that, that you would have a simple set of rules that says we're going to treat everyone else fairly. And this, I think, will also get us into the platform versus publisher uh, part of this conversation, which I think is interesting. But wouldn't that make the most sense? Just purely if a, if a business was operating the way a business is supposed to. Wouldn't that make the most sense? Just let not, people put up content, yeah. we're going to advertise it, and if, if it's illegal, you can't put it on our platform and we're good. I mean, first of all, I, I think a lot of these companies have bought into the stakeholder social responsibility kind of mantra. So they don't just maximize shareholder wealth. I wish they did, and I wish they would be proud of it and stand up for it, because that means they're creating value. By creating prop, profit is a signal of value. It's a symbol of value. Shareholder wealth means you're creating wealth, new wealth. You're creating something incredibly valuable out there. But it's not obvious to me, right? Uh, take, for example, there, there are lots of TV shows. Take television for a minute. And some companies choose to advertise on some shows and other companies choose to advertise on other shows and there's certain places where there's no advertising and and nobody nobody wants to advertise on them and it could be that uh, my sig you know the, the segments I did advertisers would rather not advertise there I don't know right I don't know how YouTube decides these things and how much communication there is with advertisers in terms of these things it could be that advertisers that the companies behind it are saying we don't want right-wing stuff, or we don't want ob objectivist stuff, or I, I doubt it. But, but the lack of transparency is part of the problem, right? That, that's what I'm always problem. saying. We'll talk, like, tell yeah. me what the huge rules problem. are. Give me, give me a consistent set of rules, and we can either play to those rules or not play to those rules. I wouldn't change my content, but I would 
I would say, all right, I'm going to have Yoram Brook on today. We know that's not going to make any money, and we have to, you know, fundraise in, in some other fashion, let's say. I agree completely. I mean, the biggest problem I see with all of these platforms in terms of is that they're not transparent in terms of what they're doing. So we don't know what they're doing. We can't plan as, as creators. We can't plan how, how to relate to them. And, and in terms of monetization, which is so crucial to, to somebody who's building a business around this, you don't know what's going to be monetized or not. I, 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 you know, a lot of my videos go up, and immediately they're, they're not going to be monetized. The, the, the algorithm has said it's not monetized. And I click on, you know, review, please have a human being review this. And almost all of them, almost all of them, not all of them, get monetized afterwards, right? A human being looks at them and says, oh, well, it's not that bad. But if I knew what was causing this to go one way or another, I could adjust. I could, I could decide how to, how, to fun how to do this. But I think, I think a lot of the rules that they send us, you know, we, we sign these contracts, um, these terms of service, and they're complicated, and we don't know what's in it, and it's hedged so that it gives them enormous... And I you, you don't have your personal lawyer review those contracts for you when you sign up for these things? You don't have your guy on retainer looking through the 50 I, pages? I, I, I probably should have, but, but no, none yeah. of us have. And, and every time you have to click on a website that says, the, you can't do it, it's not, it's not feasible. And so it would be good. I think one of the things that, that I think hopefully uh, new platforms that, that ultimately compete with these do is, is if they're going to have certain restrictions that they are transparent about them and they have some mechanism maybe to even uh, challenge a decision and maybe, maybe some kind of arbitration uh, way to arbitrate these disputes. But right now, it's opaque. From the perspective of a producer, you don't know. You just have no so clue. Can I just what? say something about... I think you have to keep in mind what a tremendous technical challenge these companies are facing. Yep and business challenge and product challenge, and that being transparent is part of that. I mean, mm -hmm. 20 years ago, none of this stuff existed. Now, I was talking to an engineer who works at Google uh, in the YouTube division earlier today. He was telling me it's 500 minutes of video a minute get uploaded to YouTube. I mean, imagine the kinds of decisions that go into figuring out how to do that. They don't have a rule book. They didn't realize ahead of time how big the issue of politicization on the platform was going to be. Maybe they should have, they weren't, but they weren't prepared for it. They're trying to figure out what the rules should be in real time. They don't have the mm -hmm. philosophical ammunition to do it and the background to do it, and that's a failure of the intellectuals and the culture of articulating the principles they need. But here these people are out to sea, having created this tremendous thing, trying to patch holes as they're sailing. You know, And if they had some, and they're changing, I mean, it's, we talk about on that video a change that happened in YouTube in their algorithms in May, and I'm sure that did happen, but there are, I was also talking to this YouTube engineer, how often is the Google algorithms changed? It's like, well, hundreds of times a day, probably. They're constantly changing how they do things, and they have to be. Um, it, when they don't have it figured out, it's hard for them to be transparent about what they're doing. So I think they should, it would be a much better product if there was that transparency, and hopefully, eventually, they'll be able to either evolve to that or be replaced by better products. But it's a real accomplishment to get there, and we've not gotten there yet. So, Brian, I'm starting to think that there's sort of an emperor has no clothes feeling to all of this, that actually the companies themselves, because they have grown so large, don't fully know what's going on with the algorithm. Is that just a naive way of looking at how engineers deal with this? <clears throat> no, that's absolutely true. Well, that's scary as shit. Um, yeah, it is. I mean, so I mean, just a little insight on 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 how 
in, in terms of what makes it hard to be transparent and a little bit about how these algorithms work, whether it's you know, ranking in newsfeed or, or uh, demonetization on, on YouTube. So what they don't have is some sort of ban list of you know, if you talk about these topics or you use these words, you know, whether if you're an objectivist or you're on the, the right, um, that you're going to fall into this category and we're going to treat you this way. That's not how it works. So what's essentially happening, and for this is true for both YouTube and Facebook, uh, on the, you know, let's talk about demonetization, for example. What they're trying to insulate advertisers from is the risk of their brands being tarnished by controversy. That's the, that's the thing that advertisers are worried about. They're worried about the fact that if they're associated with something that's considered hateful or hate speech or politically incorrect, that that's going to blow up. It's going to tarnish their brand. That's gonna, they don't want to be associated with that. Is that, so, is that a very strange thing, though? Because I don't think, say, before the Internet, if you were watching any NBC mm -hmm. sitcom, you, you weren't thinking that whoever, you know, Tide endorsed that particular episode of The Cosby Show or something like that. Did you know that the average guy will spend 3,000 hours of his lifetime shaving? Don't waste four months of your life overpaying for poor performing razors. Get Harry's, a razor that's so sharp you can shave less and save more. I love my Harry's razor and I've used it to shape up my beard. Get a smooth, close shave every time. It makes shaving a lot more bearable. Harry's makes quality, durable blades at a fair price, just $2 a blade. You get great quality at factory direct prices with 100% quality guarantee. If you don't love your shave, let them know and they'll give you a full refund. Get a trial set that comes with everything you need for a close, comfortable shave. Weighted ergonomic handle for an easy grip, five blade razor with a lubricating strip and trimmer blade for those close shaves, as well as rich lathering shave gel that'll leave you smelling great and a travel blade cover to keep your razor dry and easy on the go. Listeners of my show can redeem their trial set at harrys.com slash Ruben. Make sure you go to harrys.com slash Ruben to redeem your offer. And if you prefer to shop in store, Harry's razors are also available at Walmart and Target. Now back to the show. Yeah, I think people have become a lot more sensitive about it and they've become much more they become more activist-like uh, about it and saying, like, oh, you're, you're right next to that ad, therefore, you know, we're going to try to punish you and control you in this way. And so w what I've understood from the advertisers, and, you know, I didn't work on that part directly, but I've spoken to folks inside Facebook about this, is that that's essentially their concern. It's not that they have any, you know, they're, they're against objectivists or they're against people on the right. Um, it's that they, they don't want to be associated with something that could become controversial. And so the problem for these companies becomes, how do we predict what's going to become controversial? And the way you do that is not that you have a team of human beings who are deciding what's controversial and what's not. Uh, the answer is that you build fairly sophisticated models using artificial intelligence and machine learning that essentially try to predict uh, what's going to be controversial and what's not. Right, okay, so without going too matrix right now, aren't the humans the flaw in the system there? I mean, these systems are built by humans who have their own biases and all that. I mean, I, I look at it from a higher level than that. Like, I think the flaw is what you were saying in the sense of, like, you, you can't be that sensitive about being associated with, with content that's controversial um, because it, it is it is impossible to build models that are going to predict this stuff accurately. It, what those models end up predicting, like nobody can even tell you. Um, you might look at it from a very human perspective and say like, oh, it kind of fuzzily looks like they're biased against conservatives or objectivists or you know, whatever it is. Um, but in practice, the, the way these models work is there, there are 
hundreds of thousands of levers. Nobody knows what they all are. Uh, they're trained essentially you know, with, with data sets that are, um, and again, they're, they're trying to reduce controversy and essentially with them. And that's the advertiser concern at least. And that's where it's coming from. But there, there's no sort of ban list on far right or, or right. things like so, that. Right, I guess the issue is that what is considered dangerous seemingly always is going in one direction. So it's not that it's all far right, it's just anything that sort of, you know, 20 years ago was thought of as mainstream, say, conservative thought, now that is thought of as dangerous. But all right, let, let's talk a little bit about some of, the, some of the potential solutions and competition and regulation and things like that. One of the more compelling arguments that I've heard is that if we treated these companies like public utilities, that everyone could have access so, you know, sort of the way you get water at your house or the phone, that what you say on the phone doesn't mean that they can, you know, take your phone line away. They can arrest you if you're doing something illegal or something like that. But beyond that, that we all have access to, uh, to the machinery. Do you guys find that compelling in any way? Greg? I don't, and I think it's coming from a kind of false view of what this technology is in the first place that it was somehow neutral until people started putting their fingers on the scale. So like five years ago, YouTube was neutral as to what it showed you. There's no way to, to organize the world's information neutrally. The whole idea of organizing the world's information is making judgments, judgments powered by algorithms, but algorithms written by people and constantly tweaked by people to see what things are gonna be most important what things are we going to feature over which? How are we going to tell? What kind of connections are we going to um, prioritize over which? And it's a very complex problem of ranking information to see what we should promote, what it, we're going to try to sell to the guy who just watched, what will be on the watch next list, what will autocomplete when you write in your things at Google, what will the first results be? That stuff has never been neutral. And it's always been and has to be by its nature tuned some way or other. And what we have is there's always going to be disagreements necessarily about how to tune it. People are going to have different ideas. And when you have a government controlling that tuning, that's when you have censorship. That's when you have one person with a gun with the power to stop any competitors from arising in charge of what information we get shared and what gets shown to us. When you have a company doing it, no matter how big that company is and no matter how it might be failing in doing it, there's the... Um, all kinds of pressures on them to try to do better, to try to please more of the demographics who are going to want to use it, and there's abilities and whole capital markets kind of funding them to start up alternatives to it. And it's not like before the recent change, because there was this change that caused um, a lot of problems for your channel, right? But it's not like prior to that change, everything in YouTube was perfect. So if it was the case, for example, that the Watch Next list as this kind of alarmist Times article was talking about was leading people if they just click through after your videos to get to some really kind of Nazi-ish content or something. That, that's not a good thing either. That's not what you, know, you would hope would be shown to your viewers next after you. Yeah. Um, there was something not good about the algorithm. It was fixed in another not good way. And no one knows, one, there is no neutral way to fix it. And no one knows what the best way is to fix it. That's got to be learned by people trying it out and competing on a market. It can't be dictated by the top. And if we try to dictate it by the top, what we're going to get is the kind of media environment that people now fetishize, but which was really bad. 
the kind we had in the 50s, 60s, 70s. People talk about now, you know, back then you didn't know what Ted Koppel thought, he was neutral and so forth. That's bullshit. He wasn't neutral. He had a certain point of view. It was a very blinkered, narrow, left-leaning point of view, and just nobody knew that it wasn't the only point of view out there because he didn't have any way to get any other information. Only the real radicals who read underground publications and stuff knew the other points of view. Now everyone knows the other point of view, so they're annoyed at the predominant one, and that's better than it used to be. So for those of you that might have missed the, one of the references that Greg made there, last Sunday in the New York Times, there was a front-page cover story that had uh, pictures of about 40 YouTubers, and it was about radicalization to the far right and the alt-right by YouTube, and my picture was included in there, and Ben Shapiro and Jordan Peterson, and radicals like Milton Friedman, because <laughs> he led a lot of people to the far right. Um, but I think it's interesting because... You, we get hit with this. This is not just about tech companies. It's also about the media. It's, it's about all of these things. And it's interesting because in this article, the idea was that YouTube somehow has gamed the system so that if you watch my video, it takes you to Scary Peterson, to Scary Shapiro, and then to Evil Friedman, um, and that you're going to become far right or something. But in fact, by that video that we, we just watched here, that two-minute clip. In fact, YouTube has decided that if you watch my videos, they're going to recommend MSNBC. <laughs> so if anything, they're, they're radicalizing people in a far scarier way, in my estimation, because <laughs> nobody should be watching that. Um, yeah, that's worthy of applause. There you go. I went for an MSNBC joke there instead of a CNN joke. That was weird. Um, <laughs> But, but even that, it's like, well, I know that the tech reporters at the New York Times are not going to follow up now and go, oh, we actually got this thing completely wrong. So this is not just about tech, it's also about media. But this is why I said before, this is about the broader culture. This is about the fact that the left has won the cultural war in that sense, in the sense of setting the intellectual you know, framework for what we, what we discuss. They dominate the New York Times, they dominate you know, the regular television station. Uh, they, they, you know, <laughs> even Tucker Carlson now is endorsed pretty much Elizabeth Warren. So, you know, the left has the moral high ground. It dominates our universities, and by dominating universities, it dominates all these other things. So fixing the tech stuff is not going to change anything. The people working at tech are still going to be overwhelmingly on the left. Uh, even if you break up these companies, all these little companies, most of them, a predominant number of them, are going to be run by leftists, right? So it, there's no easy fix for any of these issues in terms of what we're concerned about is the dominant of the left in, in, in media, in the intellectual world. The, the only way to deal with that is to challenge them and replace them on the intellectual high ground. I want to say something about public utilities, because I'm against the whole concept, right? I, I, I don't think there is such a thing. I think it denies the fact that everything is, is created by somebody, and somebody had a property right over it, and the state came in and stole that property and took it over and turned it into a public utility. It was unjust when they did it to electrical companies way back when. It's unjust when they did it to telecommunication companies in the beginning of time, and then they freed them up a little bit. and and. It, you know, and it would be unjust if we suddenly determined that, that any other platform was now a so-called public utility. It's unjust to the creators, to the people who built it, to the people who made it. It's their property. And, and property rights are not a minor little detail. Property rights at the heart of all individual rights, at the heart of what it means to have a right to your own life. So then what would you say about sort of the... 
property rights crowd. <laughs> not, not just MSNBC. It's yeah, right. there you go. Uh, what would you say then to the argument, this sort of platform versus publisher argument, which is another one that I find at least compelling at some level, which is that if you're a publisher, so if you're a network, let's take you know Shapiro's Daily Wire, for example, if they write something that's libelous, uh, ben and the rest of the company, they're, they're responsible for what is on their, uh, their specific platform, as opposed to a, a wide-ranging platform where we are the creators and they have different sort of legal responsibilities where they're not supposed to be choosing what can be seen, what can't be seen, making political decisions related to advertising, things of that nature. Do you find any compelling argument around that? I mean, this is, Ted Cruz has been promulgating this and uh, I forget the name, someone tried to pass a law on this idea recently. Uh, I don't find it compelling and I think it's a real distortion of what publisher and platform means. If, if you only think of there's two kinds of things, there's uh, a totally even that makes n no thought goes into and no algorithms determine what shows up. Somehow magically it's all fair by someone's conception of fairness on the one hand and a book publisher on the other and you think those are the only two things in the universe and then you see Facebook or YouTube, you might be worried about which bucket they go into. But that's not the way the universe works. Um, what face, there's all kinds of organizations that are neither of those things. And it's pretty clear once you see, and there's no organization that's allegedly fair in this way that means everything somehow magically equally gets represented. That's not even possible. But if you think of all the kinds of organizations there are, uh, lecture halls that rent out their hall to different people to speak about different topics and they don't select who they're going to put on. They're not a, a promoter, they're just a lecture hall. But maybe they think, well, we wouldn't have this guy there. Um, colleges that let people speak at them, libraries that have book clubs and you could have a book club at the library, parks that let different people speak at them, uh, bulletin boards and someone runs a bullet, literal physical, you know, bits of cork up somewhere and someone puts things up and takes them down. Uh, and bookshops, which have different books. They didn't publish the books, but they sell them. Right? All of those things, all, none of those kinds of things are subject to libel laws or have been subject to libel laws as far as I know. They're all way more like what Facebook and, and uh, Google are than, uh, than our publishers. So I think this is um, not by everyone who's repeating it, but by the people who started to think this is a clever, dishonest argument. I think it's a way to destroy the concept of publisher in people's minds and make it include basically everything so that we could have control over basically everyone. I think it's a really power-lusting, dark uh, kind of thing that's going on in politics. So then as the guy that worked at one of these tech companies and left, did, did you just feel it was untenable? There was nothing that one guy could do? Well, what I saw was that it, whether there's a gun pointed, them, pointed at them or not for them to be better in one way or another, uh, they're never going to be good at this. These companies and the, the, these products, whether you're talking about YouTube or Twitter or Facebook, they're not built for ideas. Um, you know, Facebook was built to bring you closer to your friends and family, to keep you know to keep you up to date on what's going on with with organizations you care about and and the people you care about. Uh, you know, and YouTube was essentially built to to, to bring you entertaining videos. Um, and the what they're built to do and what they're great at is optimizing for engagement in that sense, optimizing for sort of social closeness in the Facebook sense. That is a very different optimization function than what's thoughtful or what's a different point of view 
uh, or what's going to help you learn about a complex or controversial issue. They're just categorically different things. And it doesn't matter what you try to do to get the employee base that have rallied around Facebook's mission or YouTube's mission, um, it doesn't matter how you try to get them to do it, um, they're not going to be good at building that kind of platform for ideas. It's not why they're there. It's not what they understand. Um, I think it's outside of their wheelhouse. And so, and that's why I left. I left because you know, it doesn't matter what happens after this. They're never going to build that thing that I want so deeply, uh, which is that platform for ideas. So as the guy who was mentioned by the insider, and I'm feeling a certain crunch on this and dealing with the, the demonization and the rest of it, um, I've said this publicly many times, it's pushing, so on the idea level here, I, I really am with you guys. I do not want, the government does not do anything well. I do not want the government involved in this. As I said, the idea that they could come in and run tech companies when they can't run their own websites is, is ridiculous to me. But it is pushing that sort of libertarian side of me to to its limit. It, it does feel like it's going to snap. And I, the example that I would give is, let's say right now, as we're watching this, someone at YouTube's going, well, I, I don't really want them to see this. So we can throttle the video down. And you know what someone else is going, you know, you already throttled it. Why don't we just cut the stream altogether? And then someone else is going, well, why don't we just delete his channel altogether? And then someone else says, why don't we do that on Twitter? And someone else says, all right, let's do it on Facebook. And they can, in effect, digitally assassinate you. Now, I understand none of these things are a blatant, uh, some sort of criminal event, uh, but they do seem, in the, in the world that we're going in, they do seem like a, a digital assassination that we need to think about a little bit differently. And the last thing I'll say before I throw it to you is, I just know that there's a huge amount of people watching this right now going, okay, you guys can talk about ideas till you're all blue in the head but they're coming for you you're, and you're sitting there watch, you know, talking about ideas and I, and I mean myself too here. But what, what do you think the best response to well, that Well, first is? is this is when principles matter. It's easy to be principled and believe in ideas when everything is smooth and everything's nice and you have nothing at stake. But if the principle of property rights, if the principle that the government shouldn't intervene in free speech, shouldn't monitor, shouldn't decide what's okay and what's not, if that principle is a right principle, and I truly believe it is, then yeah, it's gonna, it, it, sometimes we're going to have to fight for it under conditions that are hard. And I, and I get why it's hard for you, right? I mean, they're after you. They, they, they're attacking you. But this is when it counts. Well, it didn't count a few years ago. What, what difference did it make, right? Because it was easy. Right? Of course you were for that principle. So now's the time to stand for it. And I think, and I think that there's another issue here. It, it's, I think we should be condemning them morally. If truly somebody is there turning down and, and disturb, disrupting the stream, then we can say this is wrong. Well, this let's is say wrong that. I mean, we do. know it. I mean, that's what that video yeah. is about. That's not the machine didn't do that by itself. They have decided to put information into the machine. So we condemn. And the beauty of it is that if, if uh, 50 years ago there'd been a New York Times article about you that described you in this way, as they were, for example, about Ayn Rand and, and, and saying what a, what a horrible philosophy of what a there was very few mechanisms by which she could defend herself, so that she could present her ideas. I mean, it's interesting that you can use YouTube to attack YouTube, and they still let you do that. Um, so we need to stand up, we need to speak up. We, when these things happen, we need to make people aware of it. Now, Brian could be right, this won't matter, they can't do it, and, and I'm sympathetic to that, but they can, they can be worse or they can be better. At a certain spectrum, we can, we can have an impact. Rally your audience, you've got a massive audience, rally them against this, 
But don't invite true censorship, which would be government intervention. That would be real censorship. That would be the use of force. That would be the use of coercion. That would be true violation of rights. Let's rally morally against these companies when they do bad things and, and point them out and bring them into the sunlight as, 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 as some of these videos have done. And it, let's get people Let's get people aware. Maybe even, maybe even let's, let's have some people go to the shareholder meeting and say, I'd love, to, I'd love if some organization did this someday. Let's go to shareholder meetings and say, we want you to maximize shareholder wealth. That is your fiduciary duty in the law to maximize shareholder wealth. And you're not maximizing shareholder wealth by doing this and this and this and this. Stop it. And the left does it all the time. The left is excellent at doing this, at guilting them, at using you know, social responsibility or stakeholders or whatever it is. Let's use the right stuff, not from the right, but right stuff, to, to, to really go after these guys and, 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 and try to convince these companies to behave better. And just better until what I think is the ultimate solution, which is alternatives to them. Does some of this seem sort of... Does some of this sort of seem inevitable to you, that we had sort of a golden age of the internet where we didn't really know what it was. We didn't know what we were walking around with in our pocket. We had access to the world. Everyone was on every platform. We signed up for every new social media site. Then you realize there were all sorts of bad actors on there or whatever it was. And, you know, you see now there's a big pushback, people canceling Facebook accounts. I take weekends off social media altogether. I do August off the grid, which I want to get more people to be involved. That there's, this is just sort of the next step in what the Internet it is, that we're starting to, after 20 years or so, we sort of know what it is now, and that maybe the next version is that platforms can't survive for all of these reasons. I mean, for, for what it's worth, that's always how it's felt inside Facebook. Like, we have no idea what we're doing. <laughs> like, it, that should be the company tagline right we, there. We, we were, I mean, and I, I mean, I don't mean that in a, in a derogatory, you know, sense. I mean, what Facebook has done is unprecedented. Like, to, to have a community of almost two and a half billion people that is, you know, where people can actually connect with each other, where you can have an idea and get it out into the entire world. Um, people with no money, no power, no connection to the media have the capability to do that. Uh, that's a complicated thing. It's, it, and especially when you throw human beings into it, it gets even more complicated. Uh, there, there's no recipe book for this. Facebook wasn't created by you know, mimicking any other business. And so, you know, I, I say that in a joking way, but <clears throat> I actually have a lot of respect for the company in that sense, in that they're real pioneers and innovators in figuring out how to make this work. And so that's a good thing and a bad thing. Um, you have to give them a little bit of slack for that, but and I think holding them accountable for <clears throat> what you want as a user is also important. Uh, the other thing, I, just to go back to this point of, you know, this is pushing your libertarian principles, um, you know, I think you've got to take a long-term view on this stuff. Like, it, it, especially for you, I'm sure this, you feel the heat on this every single day, but if you just zoom out for a second, like, we haven't had that long with this issue so far. It's, it's only been, you know, I'd say it's been a couple years now. Um, it's unprecedented. It's going to take a while to figure out whether that's these companies figuring it out, which I think is unlikely, or it's competition coming and actually offering something that serves people better. Um, that takes time because these issues are so complicated and because it, it is unprecedented in a way. And 
you have to give it time. And what happens, I think, if you don't take the long-term view on this, if we just say, well, you know, this hurts right now, and so we're going to try to fix what we've got right now, uh, is we're going to prohibit the ability for all of that competition to come. You know, I, I'm, you know I'm, I'm working on some of that stuff since, since leaving Facebook, and what I can tell you for sure is that if I wake up one morning and there's a law that's passed that governs how my future company is going to have to moderate content, that's it. We're done. That's, that's the end of that business at that point in time. And, and so you know, I think you, you've got to take a long-term view on if you want, whether it's you know, what I'm doing or what any of the, the myriad of other uh, folks are doing in this space, if you want that stuff to have a chance of surviving, we've got to take the heat for a little while. So, so is the lesson really that human ingenuity is sort of always the answer? You know, I'm working on something as well. I'm working on a couple of things, actually. And I've really come around. I, I can't say too much right this second, but I've come around to the belief that sort of small will be the new big, that we went big on everything. Mm. You know, we, we bundled everything and everybody. And I think the next yeah. version of this is sort of an unbundling mm. and making things smaller and figuring out how to what type of people we want to have associations with. And, of course, that will come with massive risks because we don't want to end up in our own echo chambers and, and that sort of thing. Um, but that this all feels like just sort of the next, the next step in this evolution, as scary as that might be for those of us that make our livings just, doing this. And, you know, it's not fun waking up and, you know, seeing your name in the New York Times when they're <laughs> doing that sort of thing. That's a trend for what it's worth, like, within social media today. I mean, it's, it's very much so. If you're working at one of these companies, one of the things you've got in the forefront of your mind is that social media is fragmenting. You know, it, 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 for, for good reason, for network effects, it starts with these massive networks that sort of do everything. But as they mature and they get older with time and it gets more complicated and you get, you know, lots of different use cases, it makes sense to specialize. And so, you know, Instagram in a, in a big way within Facebook is seen as taking over a lot of the friend content uh, that used to be on Facebook as Facebook has sort of evolved into more of this news consumption, uh, public perspective um, kind, kind of content. You know, you see things like Nextdoor, for example, taking over a lot of neighborhood content that, you know, never really did all that well uh, on Facebook, but now it has a real home and that company is doing, you know, pretty damn well. Uh, so the fragmentation of social media at this point in time, I, I think, is happening, and I think one of the next big fragments is going to be ideas. And, and I, you know, I think there's a reason why some of the CEOs of the big tech companies are talking about regulation and encouraging it. And be, partially because they have the money to deal with it. They, yeah. they're, gonna, they're gonna hire the lawyers and they'll hire the compliance officers and they'll deal with it. But Brian doesn't have the money to deal with it. And it, you don't have the money to deal with it. You're gonna be crushed by whatever regulation come. And the more we encourage government to come in, the less chance there is for this to evolve because this is an evolution. It, it, the markets take time to solve problems. And it, you know, there used to be you know, automobiles in the first 10, 20 years were not very good. And there were a lot of accidents and, and, and stu bad stuff happened. And it takes time for us to develop better products that are, that are better fit for customers, that work better for customers. And you need to allow, and this is why freedom is so important, you need the entrepreneurs, the, the space to think, think outside of the box, think new, uh, and, and then to, to, to exercise in that thought, to, 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 to manifest it in reality without some government oversight and some long book of regulations. That's how you kill innovation, how you kill an industry, yeah. and how you kill thought. Human thought just disappears once the government steps in because it's stepping in. It's not benign. It's stepping in with a gun. 
government is a gun, and, and, and guns are appropriate in some c- c- contexts, it's self-defense. But when they come in and say, you have to do it this way, otherwise, here's the gun, it stops progress. And that's what's at risk here if we, if we hand this over to a governmental solution. Could I say a word about, um, a word about in the present context morally judging these companies and about what we can do in the face of this until the new companies come up or the present ones change their policies? First of all, when we're judging them, we have to keep in mind that the gun's there already. Uh, Zuckerberg was dragged in under threat of subpoena to testify in Congress. They already know that laws are coming one way or the other. The left and the right are ganged up against them. All they have to do is put aside hitting each other for a few minutes to pass a law that will throttle uh, these companies. So they're already, they know this is coming. It's a situation where it's very hard to think independently. You're already under threat. So we have to take that into account in evaluating them. Second, we have to take into account when morally evaluating them that almost all of the news we get on this, and I include in this things like Veritas, uh, are really non-objective and skewed. It's hard to know what the perspective is and you know, everything that's going on. They're always cut in some way to make it seem either great or horrible, and it's hard to put it in perspective. So I don't know. I could imagine a thing that could have gone on in Facebook or in Google, rather, where they were trying their best to solve a problem, and it looks really bad when you put it this way, but there's, you know, if you knew the whole story, it would be okay. I could imagine a way where they're being really bad. Um, so you have to keep in mind you don't know everything when you're judging it, but even without knowing everything, there's something you can do. And when I was talking to my friend who works uh, in YouTube earlier today, he was saying something that was very much in line with what Brian, you were saying about, we don't know what we're doing, the companies are uh, responding to punches left and right. They don't have a policy here, and because of that, they're moved a lot by the wind. What's in the news, what they're getting a lot of heat on, they're trying to avoid that heat. And without knowing if Facebook is sort of, you know, scheming against you, um, we can know that there is reason to be worried about your content, about the content of other people we care about on the platform. And we can know that a loud cry of, we want to make sure Ruben's not demonetized. We want to make sure he stays on this platform. And likewise for other, um, other companies that you, or other content creators you care about, uh, a loud upcry about that could really make a difference. So I don't know what the email address people could write to, but if everybody writes to, uh, writes to YouTube now, support at YouTube or whatever, everyone watching this, and says, I saw this thing about people have an eye on Dave Rubin, especially at YouTube. I want you to know I love Dave Rubin. I don't want anything done to him. I don't want him canceled. I'll stop watching. And they get hundreds of thousands of emails, or even thousands of emails. Yeah, you that could just send those emails to difference. me. That would be fine. I don't want to send <laughs> you, you, yeah, you know, I, Believe it or not, actually, although I do think that ultimately is the right thing, that if we make enough noise, and that's why I'm always talking about this, that we can change things. Uh, with a million-plus subscribers and being on YouTube now for you know six or seven years, I literally don't have an email address of anyone at YouTube. I cannot. I invited Susan Wichwicki, I think is her name. I, she's the CEO. I invited her on the show again today. So we'll see if we can move on some of that. Uh, we're gonna, we've done about an hour or so here so far. We're going to do about a half hour of Q&A. Uh, there's a mic, I think, right over there. And if you guys disagree with us on anything, I would prefer that you guys go to the front of the line. So if you have any real disagreements, please just jump up there right now. Uh, and uh, before we do that, make some noise for these three gentlemen. And for that alt-right radical Milton Friedman, <laughs> who turned so many of you into far-right personalities. I think there might be two microphones, or there's at least one right over there. 
And, uh, and we'll do this for a half hour or 45 minutes or so. So try to keep it somewhat brief, and we'll get to as many as possible. Hi. Um, thank you for coming. My question is real quick. What could free marketeers, capitalists, individualists today, what should they focus on? Should they focus on the philosophy of capitalism or the economics and the history, like the Milton Freeman did and Hayek and von Mises, to get the ideas out there and change the culture for the better? I mean, I think you have to focus on the philosophy as, as the foundation, but you better be able to answer some of the economic and historical questions as well. So it, it's not easy, but, but what makes us unique as objectivists is our focus on the philosophy, on, on, the, on the morality of capitalism, on why it's a just system, but you also have to know the other stuff as well. Yeah, I would say very briefly, it has to be both, which is exactly why I wanted to do this panel tonight, which we changed the topic just two days ago before this Veritas thing came out, because what I wanted to do tonight was do something that would take the philosophy that you guys care about, that I've talked about on the show with you before, and go, well, what? it's not just at this level where we can think about it, but it's sort of what you said, you're on there, that, well, now you've got these principles, they're going to be hard to defend, we'll defend them now. So I think, I think it's probably a little bit of both. Thank you. Hi. This question is for Dave. I really appreciate your stand on free speech and your migration toward classical liberalism, but help me understand. I fail to see how you can compromise on the principles of individual inalienable rights, life, liberty, property, and pursuit of happiness, no matter how your noble cause is, whether you want to provide education, medical care to the poor, or whatever. Don't you think that those should be voluntary and that once you allow forceful redistribution, no matter how noble your goal, your goal is, you have abandoned the most basic individual political right? And yeah. Said, yeah. So it's, it's a great question. This is something that I think about all the time. I'm actually in the, in the last 20% of writing my first book right now, and I've really been focusing on this, of, of sort of these moments where for somebody that is a truly small government guy that believes in liberty and the individual, when are those brief moments that, that government can be involved? Uh, I think this is where I, I differ with some of the guys on the panel and some of you guys here, that I do see some more, uh, some more broad uses for government. They're pretty rare. I, look, I'm a, I'm a product of public education from elementary school, junior high, high school. I went to State University of New York at Binghamton. I believe that education is something the state can provide. That being said, I believe in charter schools, I believe in school choice, and as much opportunity as, uh, as possible for parents to choose where they want to send their stu uh, children to. Um, I think there are, there are outlier cases. You know, I think that well, I know you guys don't specifically uh, describe yourselves as libertarian. I, I sort of look at the classical liberal philosophy as sort of a slightly more realistic uh, version of libertarianism. And we can disagree on the edges or we could disagree sort of at the high level philosophic places of really are we forcing anyone to do this or that and, and you know, does the state ever over encroach? Well, it does all the time, we know that. Uh, but I think you have to pick out some things that are sort of realistic within a framework of we're a country that's existed, you know, 200 plus years and we're trying to manage, as I said before, 300 plus million people and that it's not going to always be exactly as you want and sometimes maybe there is a little more use for government. So I, I sort of, I have, a, I have a little bit of, I would say, a disconnect between what I sort of believe purely at a philosophical level and what I just think is, is real politic. But I think it's a great question. This is what Ayn Rand said, check your premises. 
because once you open that slippery slope, there's no ending. Look, I, I would say this. I, believe me, I get it. I would say uh, more than anything else in the last couple of years by talking about these ideas the way that I have and have had having people like Yaron on who quite literally, when, when I finished up my first interview with Yaron, I'm sure some of you know this, I left the network I was at. They, they had been asking a lot more of us and I had this whole conversation about rational self-interest and I got up and I walked into the control room and I, I resigned right there. Um, so I've, yeah. So... Trust me, I, I get it, I get it, and these are, these are conversations that I'll, I'll always be thrilled to be, to be part of, whether we always get completely locked up on everything is actually irrelevant to me as long as we can keep doing it. I have a question for you, Dave. Um, Jordan Peterson recently had um, Joe Rogan on his podcast, and in the last 10 minutes or so, brought up teased out uh, ThinkSpot. So I'm hoping you can elaborate your involvement in that and what you hope it actually turns out to be. Yeah, um, so I actually didn't see all of that, but I know that uh, Jordan did mention it uh, while I was talking to Joe. Um, I can't actually say too much for a couple uh, sure sort of, sort of insider reasons at the moment because the platform hasn't been fully launched yet and it's, it's just going into beta right now. Um, but let me say this, if anyone can solve this on a platform front, I just spent a year and a half traveling the world with Jordan and we did something like 120 stops in you know, 100 cities and almost 20 countries. And when I, the way that I have seen this guy change the world because of the ideas that he believes in, which are rooted in individualism and liberty, and I know he has a difference, let's say, on, on religious value than maybe you guys have. If anyone can fix some of this stuff, I think he is the right guy to do it. Um, and I think what we would all agree on here is let's just get more platforms up, let's get more, what, whatever it is, what, whatever the alternatives, whatever Brian's working on, some of the other things I'm doing, let's just get more of these things out there. Let's keep testing the market and something, something will fix. But there'll be more answers to that in the next couple of weeks. Thank you. Uh, hi, my question has to do with the <clears throat> values and attitudes of the CEOs of companies like Google and its subsidiary YouTube or any others. If I were a CEO of such a company and someone said, you know, you really need to start suppressing certain opinions and not others, my immediate reaction would be, what, what about our reputation? What about our integrity? Uh, isn't that an important value? If we hold ourselves out to be fair and open to all, and we're not, isn't it going to be uh, terribly embarrassing to us? One example that comes to my mind is um, covered news coverage of the Soviet Union in the 1930s. Uh, the, the New York Times sent a communist sympathizer, if not an actual communist, Walter Durante, and he whitewashed uh, the mass starvation, death, uh, imprisonment, uh, and mass murder. And he, he wasn't the only one. Presumably when that came out, and it did come out, that Durante had done that, it damaged the New York Times. Wouldn't it damage uh, YouTube that they uh, pick on a guy like Dennis Prager, who I happen not to like, but he, he's not advocating murder, uh, and uh, let other people you know, pretty much say what they want? Yeah, as the insider, that's probably for you. Yeah, I mean, you know, I, I think, you know, speaking about Mark in particular here at, at Facebook, um, I think he's caught in a bit of a bind where on one hand, for, for many years, and I think this continues to be true, uh, he does actually care deeply about freedom of speech. 
And he is, I think, within Facebook, one of the biggest advocates pushing for a diversity of perspective both inside the company and on the platform. Um, so I, I think he believes that the, and he, he wants that. On the other hand, you know, this, this is what we talked about earlier with, I don't think he fully understands why he ought to be as be proud of what Facebook is as, a, as something he's created for the world and something that he should stand straight and, and, and up tall uh, about. And so he, he's got a bit of a, a guilt complex of, I think, about the success that the company's experienced and that, that's meant to him. And so it's made him particularly sensitive about people and groups that you know, ap appeal to him and the company for being, you know, hurt in, in one way or another. And so, you know, I think that's one piece of it is that you know, there's a lot of compromise, I think, that happens between waffling between those two. And the other piece, though, is that, again, F Facebook was not created to be a platform for ideas. Uh, it was created to be a place where you could become closer with your friends and family and the organizations, you know, later the organizations that you, you care about. And what that means, what that, if you really think deeply about that mission, um, keeping people safe, now safe is a very broad word, but keeping people safe where they feel like this is a, a safe place for them to become closer and be their authentic selves, uh, that's a really important part of that mission. And to the extent that Facebook is not primarily about being a platform for the free expression or free exchange of ideas, and it's primarily about being a place where you can be yourself and become closer to the people you care about, um, safety often wins as a result of that. And so when people come to Mark and, and to, to Facebook and they're saying, I feel unsafe because of this, uh, or, or you know, I don't feel like I can be myself on this platform because I'm being, you know, uh, people are saying this or that, um, that's, I think, the situation where you know safety starts to win, freedom of speech starts to to, to lose uh, within the platform, and you know, then that's eventually led me to my perspective that that that's not really what Facebook is about. It's not a a marketplace of ideas. And quickly to to jump on that, you know, I'm sure many of you guys saw when Jack Dorsey from Twitter was on Joe Rogan's podcast, and he brought the the head of terms of service. I'm blanking on on her name, and Joe brought Tim Pool. And Tim is a spectacular journalist, and he's a real journalist, which there's very few of these days. And basically, Joe kicked the, the pointed questions to Tim, and it was very clear that Jack, and I, I don't believe him to be a, an evil person, it was basically that he was sort of in over his head, which is sort of what you're talking about with Mark. They created something, and then it became something else. And really, at the end, I think Jack realized, well, why even have these conversations? Because it's almost impossible to placate everybody, so instead they just sort of, they, they, they basically check out, which is why I'm not holding my breath for uh, Susan from YouTube. There's a mammoth contradiction in this discussion. The contradiction is, the, the alleged problem is that some private business owners are shutting off certain people such as you, Dave, and others for no good reason. But the solution that's being discussed by some people, I don't know about the people here, but some people is, let's bring in the government 
to have a really good, fair, open discussion. Let's have Nancy Pelosi or Donald Trump decide what should be heard by the people because they will not shut down Dave Rubin and your own Brooke. They will have all the right ideas presented. That's a mammoth contradiction, isn't it? I, well, the only thing I would trust Nancy Pelosi with is what drink to order me at the bar, but um, that was too mean. I thought you guys were going to like that one. <laughs> Yes, well, there's a huge contradiction. I think, I think no, we're, I, we're addressing that, yeah. Yeah, I know, absolutely. I mean, the, the, the government is the last place you want to go to, 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 uh, to decide who should be on a platform and who shouldn't be on a platform and what is reasonable speech. And the idea that these private companies are being influenced, let's say, by a leftist ideology and that politics will not be influenced by a leftist ideology is absurd. I mean... In, 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 in political correctness and, and all of that. I mean, politics is filled with that. It's filled with that more so than any other realm. So the idea of bringing those people in is, is, is bizarre to me because, because they're the worst. They're the worst offenders. Yeah. And we've already seen it. So this yeah. isn't, in a way, it's something new. It's new with the internet. But we've already seen this happen. And this is an objectivist comfort. So Ayn Rand was writing about this in the 60s. And in the 60s, we had a worry that um, the TV news wasn't fair, that uh, some people owned too many newspaper companies, so the op-eds were all slanted in their favor. And the Kennedy administration was trying to use antitrust to break up major media companies because they were worried about precisely the same thing people are worried about now with, you know, is Google too big or whatever. And we had um, the FCC being used to really kind of constrain what points of view were allowed on the air so that it could be, quote, fair on television and radio. And as a result of that, you had particularly the FCC thing, which succeeded, the antitrust against newspapers didn't. You had decades of stale, monotonous, nobody saying anything, you know, the, the, the range of points of view that were discussed were tremendously constricted. You had some of those FCC rules uh, eliminated in, I guess, the early 80s or late 70s. That's what allowed uh, talk radio to uh, become a kind of platform where there were a lot of right-wing voices, where there were mostly left-wing voices on the other stations. Now we have this oasis of freedom on the internet, where suddenly a wide range of views that aren't right or left, as you traditionally think of them, uh, that are coming out of the blue, people like you, people like Peterson, you're on getting uh, more of a voice. Um, uh, and whoever else, the Tim Pool, uh, Joe Rogan, all these kind of voices coming up, new ideas being heard, people being discussed. And at the first hitch, at the first time uh, there are some bots or something, and it maybe it skews, maybe an election goes weird differently than people want, or too many people are insulted, or the companies overreact to that maybe by shutting down some account they shouldn't. At the first hitch, the whole damn country is calling to call the guns in to bring us back to the 1950s. Right. To shut down the conversation, to put force on the mind, this is wrong and it's not going to solve anything. It's going to kill the goose that's laying the golden eggs. We hear the golden eggs is the opportunity to spread new ideas. It's killing the freedom of the mind. So let's say the government does step in. Uh, in a mixed economy, there are limited circumstances where it's acceptable to take unearned money from the government. If YouTube freely chooses 
to demonetize someone like Dave? Should he feel comfortable accepting money from them knowing it's because they're being coerced? And how do we think about the creators whose content has been promoted instead in the meantime? Should we be comfortable uh, with them losing that income so it gets diverted back to him? I mean, I would say on the, on the personal level, this is why everyone has to make the choices that are right for themselves. And I think if you do what's right for you, you can sort of illuminate the path to figuring out what's right for other people. So for example, uh, I'm sure many of you guys saw this back in, uh, in December, January, uh, Patreon made a couple moves related to free speech with a guy by the name of Carl Benjamin, uh, AKA Sargon of Akkad on YouTube, uh, where he said some language not even on their platform, not even on his own YouTube channel, it was on someone else's YouTube channel. They didn't like the language that he used, although it was out of context and they booted him off the platform, and Jordan Peterson, myself, Sam Harris, and a few other people, uh, we had the luxury, because we're doing okay, of saying, you know what, we're gonna make a principled stand right now, and we're gonna, we're gonna leave the platform, and then I moved everything over to my website, Sam did the same to his, Jordan did a few other moves, and through that, actually, our monthly subscriptions went up, because I think we live in a time of a sort of, a sort of bravery deficit, and I think if you show people that you will do the right thing, and occasionally take some risks. I mean, you know, I, I'm not the greatest businessman in the world, but I'm pretty sure a normal businessman doesn't voluntarily give up 70% of their company's revenue, but that's what we did, and I found out about two days later that we were up by 30%. Um, so I think if you do what's right, yeah. So I think if you do what's right for you, you will show other people that they can do the right thing. Listen, it would be my preference if, if all of you guys walk out of here right now and you go to DaveRubin.com slash donate and, <laughs> and, and, sub, and subscribe monthly for whatever the amount is, um, I would gladly, just, just out of principle, I, I mean, I think about it every day, I would love to shut ads off on YouTube altogether. I can't do it right now. It's just not, it's just not a functioning. I have full-time and part-time employees and insurance and all of those things. I can't do it right now, but, but we're working on some of the solutions, and Brian's working on some, uh, and uh, you know, I'm sure you guys are working on some, at least just, just in your mind, if nowhere else. Um, but some of those solutions will, will come, and then people will be able to do sort of what's right, what's right for them. Thanks for showing that first video. I just wish they'd mask my voice a little better. <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> uh, can you talk about how when uh, trust busters are making us all scared of monopolies, um, how they narrow the market artificially to get us hyped up about it when the market is actually bigger? And is that the case here? This is maybe a question for you, Your Honor. I'm not sure I... I, I if you're your voice, about, I'm not sure I understood I the question. <laughs> like if, you, if you're worried... I think like the a, idea is when people want to claim there's a monopoly for antitrust purpose, they have an artificially narrow view of what the industry is or what the products are. Yeah, I mean, the whole idea of monopolies is, is, a, is, a, is a wrong concept. It's, it's, it, monopolies are things that are granted by the government and where the government creates protection for an industry. That's where the term comes from historically, and that's what it refers to. In a free market, or even in a semi-free market, like I think we have in technology, there is no such thing as monopolies. And, uh, it, it, you, you know, you, we've got competition right now, and the fact that there are people working on potential alternatives suggests that there are no real barriers to entry. The only barrier to entry is the marketplace. Yep. Is can you take market share from Facebook? Can you take market share from YouTube and the other platforms? But 
you know, I don't have time to get into the whole monopoly history here. I've got plenty of videos on it uh, on YouTube, uh, so go watch them. But, but hey, Dave can do self-promotion. Yeah, I can I do a little bit. Do the joke uh, there. It was so obvious. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, uh, but but monopolies don't exist in 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 even a, a, a semi-free market, and the substitute products to the products that seem to be have been monopolized are often things that we can't even imagine, often things we don't know, and often things we don't know are coming, right? So who competed Rockefeller out of his so-called monopoly over kerosene? Thomas Edison, right? So Thomas Edison, but who would have thought electricity would, is a competition to oil? Right? But it was in a sense. And, and you, that's the beauty of marketplaces. You, you, you leave them alone and it works. The, the model is the practical. If it's wrong to use force to break up a company, it's also, from a practical perspective, it's, it's going to work out worse if you, if you intervene. One of the things I can all, I just add to that, um, one of the things I can say when thinking about competing with a company like Facebook, and I say this as somebody who's now sort of in that space, uh, with what I'm building, but also spent many years watching Facebook compete from the inside, is that they, they look like monopolies because from the outside, when you try to compete with them by copying them, it never works. Like, you'll never get market share that way. And so you've got to think about it from that perspective if you're going to try to compete with, with, with a company that has massive market share. Uh, you actually have to solve a problem in a profoundly different way, in a way that users actually care about enough to migrate. Uh, and you don't do that by cloning you know, the incumbent in the market and doing something a little bit different. And so what I can say about you know, what, what we're building now, uh, which is called Thoughtful, by the way, you can go to thoughtful.community if you want to hear more about this in the future, um, what we're building now, you know, what we're not doing is cloning Facebook or YouTube and saying, but we're not going to do censorship. That's not a good product. That doesn't get at the fundamental reason that people are upset uh, about not having access to a diversity of perspectives. Uh, the, the way we look at this, uh, the, what we want to do is make it easy to find the best thinking on issues that are complicated, that are controversial, that are crucial to your life, the things that would really better your life if you could understand them, but it's just so damn hard to find the best perspectives and the best thinking on those issues. That's a real problem. Uh, and to build that kind of service, to build something that actually helps you do that, not only does it look very different than something like Facebook or YouTube, but it takes a while to figure out. I mean, this is part of where we got it. We have to give it time. We have to make sure the market uh, is capable of producing something like that. But when, when you, if we, you know, if you succeed at something like this uh, later on, it doesn't look like you com you com were competing uh, with a monopoly. It looks like you obviated them, and that's often the way it's looked in history. I worked with elite Silicon Valley executives and VC executives for the past few years. And I think there's a lot of sinister ideas in Silicon Valley in social media, but I think there's a mechanism, that, that mechanism that's being overlooked. I think that the entrepreneurs who run these companies are bad thinkers and they have bad ideas, but I don't think that's where the sinister ideas are. It's actually the consultants and advisors that they bring in to solve these problems, and they bring them in from 
Stanford University and Harvard University and the Obama administration and future administrations. And these are where the really sinister ideas originate in Silicon Valley. And the CEOs are vulnerable to them. So that's the bad news. I think the good news is that thinkers, such as all of us, we're not duped by manipulation. You can hurt Dave Rubin and Yaron Brook and financially, but it's not going to silence the truth. And, and everybody knows we're being manipulated who think. Now, uninformed people might be manipulated, but I'm optimistic to think that those who matter, who are going to affect the culture in the long run, they're going to be victims who are going to be wiped out and bankrupted all, you know, along the way. But the truth is, if we are aware that we're being manipulated, the games that Silicon Valley is playing in this way are ultimately going to all fail, and better ideas are going to prevail. So, your thoughts? So, I mean, I agree with your first point, and, and it's my point about the left, in a sense, winning the intellectual battle and dominating the intellectual high ground. So when somebody comes in from Stanford, yeah, what are they going to be? They're going to be conventional thinkers, which is now on the left. I'm not convinced about the second point, right? So, and, and it's true that those who already know the stuff are not going to be manipulated, but what about the young kids who are just trying to find new ideas, and clearly YouTube is throttling my channel, so I'm getting to, and they have been since about September, that, that I'm not getting to as many young people as I used to. So they're never going to be exposed to these ideas. They're never going to discover these ideas. Um, and, and, and I think that's true of Dave, and I think that's true of a lot of producers on YouTube. The platforms can indeed reduce our exposure, reduce the number of people that are exposed to us. Once you're exposed, I think you find that, you know, you know how to find us and you know how to search. It's that first encounter that is being suppressed, and that's what worries me. It's like, yeah, once you discover Ayn Rand's books, then you read more Ayn Rand, but finding that first book, right? And, and if the schools won't let Ayn Rand in, which is not the case, luckily, but if the schools won't, then fewer people are going to find that first book, and therefore fewer people are going to be engaged. So first of all, I wanted to uh, commend Dr. Brooke for his very lucid comments, even though he's completely an outsider into the tech industry. Um, your points were right on, um, on you were right on point. Um, one thing uh, which hit me um, as part of this discussion is it seems like there is um, a lack of understanding of uh, the engineering culture in some of these companies. Um, so I'm just, this is a question for uh, Dave Rubin. How much time actually have you spent um, seeing like the light, you know, a day in the life of an engineer? Um, because there's a, there's a lot of effort that goes into building these platforms. Um, so it's, it seems like there is this conception of this like evil engineer, you know, yeah, yeah. Um, tweaking the knobs. Um, that is not so. Um, and on the flip side, um, how much time have you spent in the day of an engineer at like say a defense company? So I've spent a decent amount of time around engineers and developers just in the last six months. Before that, not much. I had, you know, James Demoron, who was the, the fired Google engineer, and he sort of enlightened me both on the show and, and privately sort of how 
the Google operation works and how you know the engineers come up against the diversity training people and all of those sort of things. Uh, I can tell you, again, without saying too much on the tech side right now, that in the last six months since, since leaving Patreon and starting to work on some of these tech side things, I, I talk to engineers, several engineers, couple times a week, and I'm starting to learn that. So when I use sort of the, the analogy of, you know, there's someone in there pushing a knob or something like that, of course I'm being slightly sarcastic, but there, we know that there are enough people, I mean, this is, I would say, watch my, my episode with James Damore, we know that, you know, these diversity memos and meetings they have, that these ideas then leak into all of the hard sciences and the places where the engineers are doing the real work. So of course, of course, I don't think that the average engineer at Google is trying, to, is trying to do anything bad or anything like that, but we all have our own biases and when, when you have a certain amount of power, you might do that. And I, I would say either way, whether, whether there are some bad ones or not, either way, we know something is faulty with these products right now. And that's why it's, it's on us and everyone in this room and watching this to, to figure out what some of the alternatives are. All right, we got, we got four more. We'll try to do them kind of quick. Okay. Um, it's, uh, it seems as if uh, demonetizing and throttling and deleting content by uh, YouTube and others is a bad business model. They're cutting their own income by doing that. And what I would like to see for those of you doing a new, a new platform is to have, rather than having the company delete content, that people, uh, advertisers say, I would like to advertise on this channel so that they can positively support the ideas and the thinkers that they agree with. Uh, well, just very briefly, it's a little bit of sort of just a technical way that they do these ad buys where they're just buying across the board, and then there's a couple keywords that they just spread things to everybody. Um, but yes, my preference for sure, if anyone's watching this and wants to sponsor the Rubin Report, I would much prefer that just a cool coffee company or a wine company or a sneaker company or a clothing company that just digs what I do. I would much prefer to have products that I directly care about sponsor and then also them take a little piece of that risk. If people think that what I'm doing is controversial, well, maybe they'll put their money where their mouth is and, and buy products that support controversial ideas. So that, that's just a little bit of a different business model for those guys. One thing I could add to that as well, like, this is something that the, the marketplace needs to innovate on too yeah. because you know, what I know about advertising is that advertisers are allergic to controversy, and I also know that a free exchange of ideas, you know, is, controversy is endemic to a free exchange of ideas. Uh, those are really at odds at a very fundamental level, and so, yeah, I mean, when we're working on, on thinking through the business model of this stuff, like, we're very aware of that. Hi, thank you for the talk today. Um, certainly I and everybody in the room are very pro-free market. Uh, my concern is if politics is the gun in the middle of the room that we're not going to grab, what do you do or is there a concern that your opponent is grabbing it? And, you know, after, if Google is putting their thumb on the scale already, can the free market even survive eight years of Bernie Sanders, right? So are we playing a long game and I agree, in the long run, the market will solve all these problems. That's, I, I agree with that. But then you see Chase Manhattan Bank 
you know, canceling accounts with no reasons. Uh, and there are other banks. That's a heavily regulated industry. And, you know, if Bernie Sanders is in there for eight years with uh, Google, uh, is there concern that we're going to lose what we have because we're playing the long game because sure. they already have the gun in their hand? I, I want to let one of you guys hit this, but this is what I was trying to say before about this idea that people are going to go, okay, you guys get it at the idea level, yep. but the people that you're fighting against are willing to do all of the bad things that you will never do. But the people we're fighting... Am I, am I, is my bike back on? I put it back on. The people we're fighting against are on every side, if by side you mean Republicans and Democrats. Donald Trump is no free marketer. He's no fan of free speech. He tweets about wanting to, to I mean, he literally tweets about wanting to prosecute comedy shows that make fun of him. No one's done that. I mean, I can't think of another president who said it. So I'm not saying he's the worst ever on free speech, but he's not, it's not like this guy's going to be good on free speech and we got to get him versus Sanders. And then who are Sanders' other opponents in the Democratic? Well, Warren? Warren wants to... I mean, it's not like there's some candidate on the horizon right now who's really better than the other ones on this. What we have to make known if we want there to be better candidates in the near future is that all of these options are the same and equally unacce unacceptable. And which thug with a gun starts shooting it at people speaking? If it's this one or that one, and he gets your left ear or your right ear, that is no different. You're just as dead or crippled either way. We have things we can do to support freedom on these platforms. We can um, make it known that we're against candidates who want to regulate this industry. We can judge, once we have two candidates uh, to vote for, right, uh, which one is a little bit better than the other on that. We're in this position, we don't know whether the Republican or the Democrat will be the worst. They're both going to be bad. Uh, we can make it known why we're voting for one or the other or why we're abstaining. And we can do a lot in the meantime to uh, support the people who are trying to build other platforms, to get on those other platforms, to talk to these companies about what we want out of them, to protest if we're afraid that they're going to cancel a channel we want. There are practical take steps we could take but joining the struggle to grab the gun with other people who want to point it at us is not going to save us. And all the other factions that want to grab the gun, all the ones that are trying to point it, are trying to point it at us, are trying to point it at the mind, at the people who want to speak freely. And you can't get in a struggle over who, grabbing the gun unless you've got people who are going to use it to protect rights, not thwart them. At least we're going to be a little bit better than the other guy on it. And right now, we don't know which side is better. It's not always the same side, election after election. But, but it, it's a broad, I, I think it's even broader than that. You don't save freedom by denying it, by rejecting it, by using force, unless you're ready for a revolution. You want to grab, I, I've said this before on the platform with Okan, you want to go start a revolution and break into the armories and get guns and really fight it? Let's talk, right? <laughs> I'm not advocating for that, but let's, let's call it what it is. But you don't, you know, when, 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 when George Bush said in 2008, I'm, uh, I'm rejecting, I'm, I'm, I'm doing all these anti-capitalist things to save capitalism. Did any of us believe it? No. Uh, you know, I'm going to break up, I'm going to uh, deny Google and Microsoft and all these companies their rights in order to save capitalism and save free speech. Is that possible? Is that even conceivably possible? Because the left plays dirty, because the left is willing to use the power of government in order to defend the idea that government shouldn't use force, we can't use the government's force. 
You don't use the government's force in order to, you know, deny it force. It's a complete contradiction. You don't save capitalism by rejecting capitalism. You don't save freedom by rejecting freedom. You don't save free speech by rejecting free speech. We believe in freedom. And this is the point I made to Dave before. This is where the rubber hits the road. If we don't defend freedom now, when are we going to do it? If we don't stand up for free speech in the face of the challenge we've got right now, when are we going to do it? It's now that, 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 that it's, everything's at stake. Everything. And that, is, and that is not a sacrifice for principle, right? It's, it's not, not a sacrifice for like principle. We have a principle and we're willing to die for it. We can't live without it. And it's, and it's, it's, it's if, you look at the, if you look at some people on the right, and I've mentioned this First Things article, and I mention it again, the conservatives from First Things who are saying now, we need to violate the principles of free markets in order to save us from the left. We need to violate the, we need, the culture's not moral enough, so we need to impose moral authoritarianism in order to save us from the left's cultural nihilism. We need to violate the principles of freedom to make us what? To make us authoritarian, that's what ultimately this all leads to. You do not achieve freedom by force, unless unless it's revolution. And then, okay, then the gloves are off and let's go do it. You know, I have a little bit of training, so so I can can help you guys out. Yeah, boy, short sleeve, Yaron Brook is ready for a revolution, people. Go for it. All right, two more, two more. Hi, thanks. I'm going to... uh, Try and plot, actually apply an Ocon uh, lesson that I learned. Channel my uh, inner Alex Epstein. Epstein. Um, do you think um, there's a better way to frame this issue rather than? And, and I think you guys may have just touched upon this, so you know we, I could just move on. But is there a better way of framing this issue than a sort of left versus right, or in, in terms of left versus right? Because I mean, just speaking personally, I'm you know I'm 39 year old. Um, I'm just turned off by the left versus right yeah. argument because it's meaningless. It's, it's individuals versus the left and right together. So I'm just curious if you thought about kind of a better way of attacking these problems because I don't see the left-right argument as being effective, personally. I think you just said it. Yeah. yeah. It's, yeah. It's, it's individualism versus collectivism. What we should fight for is free speech. Right. We should fight for free speech, which means no government intervention in the issues of speech and no government intervention in the marketplace for ideas, and no government intervention in these platforms. And whether the government is left, right, you know, it doesn't matter. Collectivism and force have no place in the marketplace. And that doesn't mean being some utopian who lets the perfect be the enemy of the good and won't settle for anything. So like, Dave and I disagree on some things about free speech. You're in favor of public schools, uh, or at least you're more sympathetic towards them. I think that's a violation of free speech. But if I think of like where Dave is on free speech versus where Trump and Bernie Sanders are on free speech, it's clear like he's a lot more for free speech than they are. He's pretty close to my view of it. We can argue about this thing and we can see if we got the country to where Dave wants it to be, that would be huge progress. And if we got it to halfway to where Dave wants it to be, that would be huge progress, right? So it's not that unless you have the perfect, you can't vote for anyone. Don't vote for Trump or don't vote for Sanders because he's not 100%. But you have to have a view of what you're aiming towards, uh, what freedom is, and then be able to see why the thing you're supporting is closer to it. And be advocating not just for some abstract ideal, but for steps to get closer to it. So what are some steps to get closer to it? Well, the first one is um, 
free up these tech companies, stop regulation on them, stop the net neutrality laws that there were, and that was one good thing this administration did, right? But think of what the concrete steps are towards freedom, and especially notice concrete steps that are being taken away from it and make sure those don't get taken in the name of freedom. All right, one more. Bring us on. This is mostly for you, Dave, but it almost certainly applies to you as well, Yaron. So there's a very noisy minority of, you know, the so-called authoritarian right or the far right or the fascist right, the kind of people that use three parentheses, and they use the same kind of rhetoric about, oh, we're this uh, disenfranchised uh, minority on, we're subject to the, uh, to the persecution of Facebook's and Google's algorithm, and you've kind of been forced to bear these people as almost fellow travelers because they're saying something that's very similar. How has that affected your ability to communicate for what you're fighting for, having to bear these people? You know, it's interesting. Jordan gets asked a similar version of this question often in the last year because, you know, some of the, what, you know, what are known as shit posters or the, the uh, meme makers and the Pepe people and all of those things, the frogs and all that, that there's a certain element of them that kind of dig what we're doing because even if they, they don't like us for some sort of identity reason, they like that we're fighting for free speech or something like that. Now, A, I would say it's really hard to judge what these people really are, right? It's really hard to go, are these people truly white nationalists or neo-Nazis, or are they just shit posters? Are they just kids who get at their computer and tweet frogs at celebrities so that they can go crazy? I mean, it really is some version of that. So it's a little bit hard on that side. But what I would say, just let's pretend that there's a certain amount of them that, that really do exist. If they're watching my show and think I'm offering um, you know, safe quarter for any of those ideas that are based on racism or collectivism in any way. I mean, I would just say you're, you're watching the wrong show and you've got this thing really kind of confused. Um, but also, I would say that the more, for someone like me that came from the left, that has more, for, I get what we're saying here about the left-right thing, but that has more frustrations with identity politics right now, if we can unfurl a little bit of the way that that is so entrenched in media and academia right now and with the tech companies and all of that, What's happening on the right, the version of that that you're talking about, really is a reaction to, to the craziness that it has exploded with on the left. And I feel like if we, can, if we can unfurl a little bit of what's going on with the left, which is much more mainstream, and I think I've been pretty effective at it, that, that portion of it on the right, whatever that is, I don't think it's a lot of people, and I don't think it has any institutional power. I don't think that it has real political power. I'm talking about some sort of white nationalist thing or anything like that. And I think we'd be able to kick them to the curb where, where those ideas belong. So it's on us to do a little bit better job having those conversations. It's a great question. On that note, guys, uh, thank you very much for being part of this. Make some noise for the people at home. And thank you to my panelists. And, and I do want to just, uh, I want to say one other thing, which is that I want to just be very, very clear, not only, really not for you guys in the room, but for the people that are watching this at home, that anything that I do with ARI, Tal and, and your own and everybody else, they, we never go through what I'm going to do. Sometimes they'll say, oh, maybe you want to focus on this or focus on that. They say, go up there and do whatever you want to do. It does not matter what we agree on. It does not matter what we disagree on. And for that, for nothing else but that, uh, I, I will keep doing these things as long as they'll invite me. And I always find you guys to be a great audience. So thanks again. And have a good night, everybody. All right. Thank you.